This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, Katie Porter, the new member of Congress who flipped a longtime Republican district in Orange County, talks about defending the Postal Service and about ending student loan debt. And we'll also talk about politics on TV in 1968 with Ella Taylor and about a new documentary called The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. His guests included Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and also Aretha Franklin. It's streaming now on Peacock. That's the new streaming service from NBC. First up, Rick Perlstein on Reaganland. Rick, of course, is the author of the classic book, Nixonland, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was picked as one of the best nonfiction books of the year by just about everybody. Then came The Invisible Bridge, and now, at last, we have his new book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice, a former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New York Times, Newsweek, and The Nation. We reach him today at home in Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Great to be back. Let's start in 1976. Jimmy Carter, the governor of Georgia, ran against Gerald Ford, the man nobody voted for for president, and the man who pardoned Nixon. One of the first articles I ever published was about Carter beating George Wallace in the Florida Democratic primary. It seemed to me and a lot of other leftish people at the time that the biggest threat to liberal Democrats was George Wallace, who threatened to draw the white working class of the North out of the Democratic Party with an openly racist and not so subtly violent appeal. Jimmy Carter was a white Southerner who seemed to be a strong liberal. He stopped George Wallace in Florida, and we thought our troubles were over. Once Jimmy Carter was asked what he was most proud of as a politician, and he said beating George Wallace <laughs> in the Florida primary in 1976. And I remember people were kind of laughing at it and you know, giving this an example of how kind of out of touch and strange Jimmy Carter was, but it really was remarkable accomplishment for exactly the reason you say. And it was also um, one of the greatest accomplishments of this very strange and uh, important figure in the history of American politics, Pat Cadell. Uh, so um, Pat Cadell uh, was, you know, Carter's pollster. He'd been George McGovern's pollster. He started his polling company in Harvard out of his dorm room. And he was the guy who figured out that, you know, basically the, the politician of the future would be an anti-politician would run against Washington. <clears throat> One of his first successful campaigns was Joe Biden for Senate in 1972. He told him not to mention his opponent, just to mention that he was running against Washington. And uh, Jimmy Carter fell in love with him, and he was very influential in kind of creating the image of Jimmy Carter as this guy who was just an honest toiler, honest peanut fire farmer from you know a small town in Georgia, which was only true as far as it went, right? Uh, and what he did in 1976, what Cadell did, was he devised a slogan for Carter that was absolutely brilliant. So George Wallace had a slogan, uh, that was kind of speaking to the alienation of the you know lower middle class white people, uh, send them a message, right? right? 
it was the same kind of, you know, own the libs kind of message that we've heard, you know, a thousand times since. Uh, Pat Cadell said, this time, don't send him a message, send him a president. And the reason it was brilliant was that it simultaneously kind of spoke to the alienation of white Southerners vis-a-vis, you know, kind of the snobs of the Northeast, and also said, this time, we'll really get them. You know, we'll really show them this time. So it's not quite accurate. <laughs> uh, it was kind of a willful misinterpretation among liberals to say Jimmy Carter, you know, beat George Wallace by, you know, promising a revival of the New Deal and, you know, the politics of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It was, it was, it had a Trumpian Wallace appeal, right? And, but it was enormously important. And up in New York, lots of people, among them William Vanden Heuvel, who has a, you know, role in the nation, uh, sold Jimmy Carter as the guy who was both from the South and was a post-racist Southerner, which of course he was, and that this guy kind of checked all the boxes and could perform political miracles. And that really was very central to how Jimmy Carter won the presidency in 1976. Uh, he became all things to all people, and he was very good at sort of fudging exactly where he stood on issues. Uh, I tell a story in the first chapter of the book of Gerald Ford's pollster kind of trembling and explaining uh, how um, Jimmy Carter had the support of pro-gun control people, anti-gun control people, pro-abortion people, anti-abortion people, liberals, conservatives, labor, business, uh, which is a great way to win an election, but a terrible way to govern once you get there, because then all those checks have to be cashed. And once he became president, uh, it became evident that he his most dominant political identity and his greatest passion was one he hadn't mentioned at the campaign trail at all, which was the call for sacrifice, the call for austerity, the, the claim that we were living in, 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 in wartime-like conditions, which only see, he seemed to notice, and that we had to kind of do what our parents did to win World War II and kind of tighten our belts. And uh, that meant consistently, and I'm going to give the chapter and verse in the book, retreating from the kind of New Deal politics that had elected uh, Democrats for generation, the uh, tax, 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 spend, 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 elect, elect, elect formula that drove Republicans batty because they said, you know, no one shoots Santa Claus. No one's going to shoot a politician that promises to send them checks <laughs> or jobs from the federal treasury. And of course, one of the first big things Jimmy Carter does is he cancels 50 dam projects uh, because he doesn't think they're kind of, you know, they, they, they don't meet his engineer's muster. But of course, these dam projects were sort of things local politicians relied upon uh, to deliver votes. So yeah, uh, that was basically uh, the lane that opened up for Ted Kennedy to challenge Jimmy Carter in 1980. And the tension uh, gets very nasty and personal around 1978 and 1979 around the issue of health care. Jimmy Carter has promised a national health care program. He eventually uh, makes a proposal that, you know, by today's Obamacare, Clinton care standards is downright Bolshevik, uh, you know, <laughs> merging Medicare and Medicaid and greatly expanding all kinds of stuff. Uh, Ted Kennedy is proposing a single payer program that Carter complains can only get six votes in the Senate. And after Jimmy Carter gives his big announcement, I think this is early 1979, Ted Kennedy gives a press conference in which he says that Jimmy Carter is proposing separate but equal 
healthcare, which is such a nasty slam. Ooh. It's such a nice troll because Jimmy Carter is this guy who completely dotes on his identity as the guy who's, who's emerged and turned his back on the South's racism. And of course, here's Ted Kennedy calling up the specter of Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court case that said that uh, segregation is legal as long as it's separate but equal. And it's on. It's a terrible feud. Well, uh, you know, I'm a professional historian, and uh, it's one of my jobs to learn the lessons of history. And and I studied the Goldwater uh, election very carefully, as so many did, and I concluded that this meant that Reagan had no chance of winning. I was gleeful when R Reagan won the nomination in 1980, because Goldwater, the lesson of history was that a right-wing Republican could not get elected president in America. And Reagan was the Republican most closely identified with Goldwater because of that speech at the 64 convention. Reagan also believed in voodoo economics. He wanted to get rid of detente and go back to the Cold War. He was a second-rate actor who played opposite a chimp in bedtime for Bonzo. Reagan was not only impossible right-wing candidate, he was also a joke. I don't think I was the only one who learned that lesson from history. Yeah, well, you ignored a lesson of history, which was that <laughs> Ronald Reagan couldn't possibly become governor of California in a liberal state. <laughs> Ronald Reagan loved teaching that lesson to people again and again, and among the people who did not learn it were uh, the Carter campaign. Rick Hertzberg, who was Carter's speechwriter, uh, was the guy who told me that they were absolutely convinced that all they needed to do was get Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter next to each other on a debate stage, and uh, the public would realize, and I, I call a chapter this, quoting a Carter strategy member, that memo that Carter is smarter than Reagan. And they made sure to negotiate the terms of the debate to give uh, Carter as much time as possible to patiently and pedantically explain all the ways that Ronald Reagan was lying or, or was wrong or, or was getting his facts wrong. First, Jimmy Carter pointed out, quite factually, that Ronald Reagan had been against Social Security in his 1964 Goldwater speech. And Ronald Reagan spun some ridiculous tale involving a widow and an orphan that, I, that it was impossible to follow, but it was incredibly charming, and uh, managed to kind of sufficiently cloud the waters to make it seem like Jimmy Carter was the one telling a fib. And then realizing he had not quite landed that blow a couple of minutes later, uh, Carter pointed out completely factually that uh, Ronald Reagan had begun his national political career in 1961 as a national spokesman for the American Medical Association, in which he claimed that if Medicare is passed, we'll be telling our children about what it was like when America was free. And let me interrupt at this point, because this is the most memorable part of the debates of 1980. People only know one thing that Reagan said to Carter, there you go again. And that's what we remember. Not that they were talking about a healthcare for all government healthcare program and that Carter was right that Reagan opposed Medicare. Why do we remember there you go again and not the substance of what they were debating? Because human beings are just terrible, terrible animals, you know? <laughs> I, 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 I have no idea, but I can tell you that Rick Hertzberg told me that when Ronald Reagan lied through his teeth with this charming smile that backstage the Jimmy Carter people were all, were all high-fiving each other because they knew the next day's headlines would be Reagan lies about record on Social Security and Medicare. 
Instead, all the punditry was, wow, Reagan isn't so, isn't so doddering after all. And, and look what a, you know, pedantic, you know, boring, you know, sort of school marm Jimmy Carter is. <laughs> and they went into the debate, tied, and this is one of the cases in history where a debate had a very profound effect on the outcome. Well, the heart of your book is the rise of the culture war as the key political weapon of the new right. And that means it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. In 1978, you say in your book, the new right organized to repeal a gay rights ordinance that had been passed in St. Paul. I was amazed to see how broad the opposition to gay rights were, not just the evangelical preachers and the Catholic archbishop, the opponents of gay rights included the DFL, the Democratic Party, all the big unions, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, and the Minnesota Rabbinical Association. The Jews were against gay rights. Jerry Falwell came to St. Paul and led a rally where a thousand activists cheered him saying that gay people engaged in, quote, murderous, horrendous, twisted acts, close quote, and the gay rights ordinance of St. Paul was struck down in 1978 by a vote of two to one. How did hostility to gay rights become such a powerful issue in the late 70s? It's one of those examples where, you know, Hitlerian big lie politics really kind of went big time in the United States of America. The first initiative of this sort was in Miami, you know, in, 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 in Dade County, uh, led by, you know, the pop singer Anita Bryant, who was kind of like this, this, this kind of like Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American patriotic pop singer. And the whole argument was that gays were recru recruiting young people to become gays. They can't reproduce, so they have to recruit. <laughs> which is just like absolutely nuts. Uh, but I think that in a time of profound social change, when sort of the, the liberation movements of the 60s were kind of working their way through the institutions, this was a way for people to kind of register their anxiety about change as such. Reagan himself came out against the Briggs Initiative in California in 1970, 1977, that was an, an initiative to ban the gays from teaching that was way ahead, two to one. And then Reagan came out against it, uh, supporting gay teachers. Right. One example where uh, it's really one of the great stories for the left in the book, because what happened, a couple things, we'll get to Reagan, but first we'll get to the campaign itself. The guy who, this is really well told, by the way, in the movie Milk that the guy who was running the campaign uh, for the pro-gay rights side was this guy, David Goodstein, who was this very kind of she-she publisher editor of the gay paper, uh, The Advocate. And because of the backlash against gay rights that was going on and because of actual lynchings of gays that had happened, he was terrified that gays remain in the background in this campaign in which he literally said that gays role in the, camp the campaign should be stuffing envelopes and that people should avoid coming out. And uh, they weren't doing very well. And then another guy comes in on the left track, this city council member, Harvey Milk, and he says, no, the only way we're going to win this thing is to convince our neighbors that we are their neighbors, right? So he, um, 
he makes sure that the um, gay pride parade in San Francisco in 1978 takes coming out as its theme. Uh, he writes on the back of a sign, a placard, I'm Harvey Milk, I'm from Woodmere, New York, and people did it. They wrote the small towns that they came from because, of course, San Francisco had become the city of refuge where gays from all over the country came to, to live safely and in peace. But it was only by saying, no, we have to lean into this. We have to say that gays and lesbians are everywhere. We are your neighbors. We are contributing members to society that the tide turned. But another reason the tide turned was David Mixner, uh, a very uh, experienced um, left-wing activist who had um, one of the organizers of um, the moratorium protest in uh, 1979, uh, 1969, I should say, had the idea to approach Ronald Reagan and to argue that this was government control run amok, that that teachers would lose control of their classroom because kids could accuse their teachers, you know, if they just, you know, got a bad grade. And somehow this, this, this persuaded Ronald Reagan, who had, you know, he had, he had some history of tolerance uh, when it came to gays, but also some history of bigotry, which was quite typical at the time. And once he said uh, that he was against this initiative campaign, support on the right dried up. Now we should add that I published you know, private letters that he wrote in which he said, you know, if any laws should have to be passed to keep gays from promoting their lifestyle, I'll be the first in line to endorse them, but just, this is not the one. Right. So let's not, you know, kind of make it out that, you know, like uh, uh, Ronald Reagan is, you know, the uh, the Rosa Parks of the, you know, gay rights movement in California in 1978. But lo and, lo and behold, this this loses. And uh, next year is the tragic story, of course, of Harvey Milk's assassination and not just his assassination, uh, but a deliberate political assassination by a cop who was adopted by cops as a martyr and a hero. And when the city council member, former cop who shot Harvey Milk and the mayor, uh, uh, Moscone, George Moscone, uh, went to trial, basically the city attorney threw the case because it was kind of like a blue flu kind of thing. There was this terror that if Dan White went to jail and was punished to the full extent of the law, that they would lose control of the city. So it was a very ugly, frightening, terrifying portent of you know what was to come next year with Reagan's victory. So if you look at the electoral map of 1980, looks like Reagan won everything. And indeed, he triumphed in the electoral college, but this was not a popular landslide. He got only 51%. And people like me, you know, had been saying that American voters did not like right-wing Republican <clears throat> ideas and policies. Did Reagan's victory prove that we were wrong? It was not an ideological mandate by any by any means. In fact, you know, I have survey results that you know thirty five percent of Americans believe that social programs should be cut. You know, he won because the economy was terrible because Jimmy Carter was not an effectual advocate, and there was of course a third party candidate, a John, uh, independent candidate, who by the by November had decided that he could take most of his votes from Carter. So he began hammering hard against Jimmy Carter. And the, the exit poll results are based the majority of people who are voting for Reagan were voting against Carter. And the majority of people who were voting for Carter were voting against Reagan. There was enormous apathy, very low voter turnout. And my favorite illustration that I found in the book is a, a cartoon of a guy on election day pulling the curtain and then hanging himself <laughs> when faced by the choices. <laughs> so people 
are looking in your book for clues about the triumph of Trump. But, you know, what I take away from this is Trump really is not like Reagan. I mean, just look at the Republican convention that's underway right now. The, the darkness, the anger, the fear-mongering. Reagan was sunny and cheerful. Trump, Trump is not sunny and cheerful. What else am I leaving out here? Well, I think that the Reagan movement had a lot of similarities to, to Trump, right? I mean, Reagan, one of, one of the reasons for his political genius was his ability to put this genial face uh, on a movement that was full of, you know, murderous rage. I mean, literally Jerry Falwell is going out and saying a homosexual will just as soon kill you as look at you. I had this amazing quote from Pat Robertson. Uh, he's talking about why he doesn't support Jimmy Carter. He says, God wants stability. It's better to have a stable government under a crook than turmoil under an honest man. So, you know, any idea that to the Christian rights turn to Donald Trump is some sort of novel development, you know, you've got another thing coming, right? So what we're looking at is uh, an element of a political coalition and a reactionary energy in American politics, uh, which is quite continuous. And the fact that, you know, as the social base for this kind of politics diminishes and diminishes and diminishes, they have to kind of scream at the top of their lungs in order to maintain it and, and, and cheat and lie, which, of course, <laughs> I adduce evidence of this in the book, too, this Liat water and this water stone and the Paul Manafort. So they're all there, right? But the figurehead is very, very different. One of the key differences in the figurehead is that Reagan really was an ideologue through and through. And Trump really is not an ideologue. Trump you know, Trump will go wherever he, he needs to. Um, he wants to advance his own, you know, financial interests and his own family. And it happens that it works out that the Republican Party is the way to do this. So he's happy to adopt the tax. And well, he's an <clears throat> ideologue when it comes to clubbing people of color over the head. I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty principled on that. Reagan, as you have said, lied a lot, but it was always for the purpose of advancing the agenda of of the right. Trump just lies in general, you know. I think that's a maybe not a major difference, but it's an interesting difference. It is an interesting difference. I mean, um, Ronald Reagan could lie without even being aware he was lying, you know, because he had that sort of blindness of affect, right? So what did Reagan have that Trump doesn't, aside from the sunny outlook and the charm? You know, people make fun of him for this. You know, he, he could take direction, right? He could delegate. He knew what he was supposed to say in public and what he was only supposed to say in private. Sometimes he, you know, honored that only in the breach, and that usually made news. Like when he said something like, oh, um, you know, 1986, he said, South Africa has made greater strides in race relations than we have in America. Uh, but that always became, you know, what the heck did he just say? But there's no front stage and backstage when it comes to Donald Trump. If somehow the, the Donald Trump, you know, Oval Office tapes suddenly dropped tomorrow, none of us would be particularly surprised about what we heard on them. Whereas, you know, in, a couple of weeks ago in The New Republic, I had an article comparing the letters that were ghostwritten for Ronald Reagan to sign to the ones he actually dictated to his friends. And, you know, it was night and day. Tell us a little more about those letters. <laughs> How much time do you have? I'll just give one example of, of, of one of his letters that he signed and one example of one of his letters that he dictated. Uh, my favorite letter that he signed was a letter to an intellectual who had sent him a book about foreign policy. And uh, the letter that he signed said, uh, I learned so much from your book. And the letter had been advanced to him to sign with a cover note from his aide saying, don't bother to read the book. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's, that's the letters he signed. My favorite letter that he uh, dictated talked about um, how 
biblical prophecies uh, uh, foretold what was going to happen in the Middle East. Or maybe it was the one to the ones to his friend Gene Dixon, the, the the newspaper psychic. You know, if Donald Trump was into newspaper psychics, we'd hear about it from the Oval Office. And I wonder if you have any uh, closing thoughts on the Republican convention. We are speaking after day one, so there is more to come. But we got a a big dose of the Trump Republican Party uh, on the first night. It's straight out of George Orwell. I mean, it's like night is day, up and down. And I'm absolutely convinced. You cannot tell me that Kimberly Guilfoyle did not study Adolf Hitler's podium cadences. Uh, and I'm, it's not a joke. Uh, it's really scary stuff. And I think the bright side is the number of swing voters that are likely to be moved by this kind of stuff probably is uh, ceiling in the single digits. It's really scary stuff. Rick Perlstein, his magnificent new book is Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. 1,100 pages testing the limits of bookbinding technology. <laughs> totally smart and totally fun to read. Rick, thanks so much for the book, and thanks for talking with us today. Until next time, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for Katie Porter, the new member of Congress who flipped one of those longtime Republican districts in California's Orange County in 2018. She had been a law professor at UC Irvine, where I'm also on the faculty, and she was a student of Elizabeth Warren, She's an expert on banking who serves on the House Financial Services Committee. She's also been a key supporter of legislation to reduce the influence of dark money in politics. And she's a vocal supporter of Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. In a conversation at a Nation magazine event with our publisher and editorial director, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Katie Porter was asked about student loan debt. The crisis of student loan debt is not just a crisis of those who have student loan debt. It is an overall crisis for our economy. So if you never had debt, good for you. If you went to college back when it cost $50 or whatever, these numbers that just seem impossible to me, good for you. If your parents or grandparents were able to pay or you got a scholarship, great. But the student loan debt overhang is holding back our entire economy. It is both a microeconomic household financial problem, but also a structural macroeconomic problem. And there are some wonderful studies by progressive economists um, showing that if we would lift that student loan debt burden and substantially relieve that student loan debt burden, our entire economy would be stronger, would be more stable, and would have more, more engine, more potential for innovation. Um, student loan debt is also not a young person's problem. And I think, you know, I watched with sort of the Bernie campaign and some people I know, including the, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch Eater is a Bernie voter. Well, he wasn't a voter, ah. but he was a Bernie fan. Um, at one point in my house, I had Bernie fan, a Kamala fan, a Booker fan, and I was the Warren co-chair. So it was a real hot mess at the dinner table, let me tell you. I was living the dream every night at dinner. Um, 
But I think one of the things that is important in sort of young people being attracted to Bernie because of his willingness to take on student loan debt and actually do something about it, not just pander, was actually student loan debt is a huge problem for middle age and older people. Um, you know, I heard Elizabeth Warren say last night, you know, people are having to pay for 20 years. Yeah. And I thought to myself, Elizabeth, 20, 30, 30, 40. And the fastest growing group of bankruptcy filers in this country is people 70 years and older. And so I think there's an overarching problem of people carrying debt later into life that I'm really interested in that's connected to that student loan problem. But people who are now trying to retire with 10 or 15 years left on a mortgage, this, we, didn't, we didn't actuarially build retirement systems that way. And so that's something that I think about all the time. So yes, I think we should forgive student loans, um, but I think there's no, we, we cannot do that without at the same time having a plan for how we're gonna tackle reducing the costs of college going forward. It just doesn't make sense to solve the past and set us up for the same problem again in the future. And so I, I think one of the things I'm really interested in is we've seen a number of plans for how to um, how to reduce and you know forgive student loan debt, the federal government could do that. It's pretty, it's politically really challenging, but it's it's policy wise pretty straightforward. How to bring down the costs of college um, is actually a more challenging problem. Yes, part of the answer is more federal and state funding, but part of it is also that college costs a lot more, and so states are paying the same proportion of college costs that they used to. It's just that the other half is so many more dollars. And that's something that we really need to have a conversation about and about the role of the federal government in doing that. So, you know, my goal is to have college that, um, you know, you could work in the summer and earn enough to pay at least your tuition, if not your room and board. That was true for Senator Elizabeth Warren. It wasn't true for me. It wasn't even close to true for me. When my children found out how much college costs, they told me that they didn't want to go because they don't want to do that to me, mom. So that is a system that is deeply broken and that is, that is inhibiting a whole generation of children's ambitions and potential. And so I'm, I'm really interested in not just solving the past overhang, which I think is a macroeconomic structural issue for our economy, but also in what these high costs of education are doing to, to shaping opportunity for young people, particularly in ways that affect people of color um, and people from lower income communities and people from rural areas, people with less advantage. Katie Porter was also asked about vote by mail and how to defend it from Trump's attacks. Uh, with regard to the post office, we need to think about the post office and talk about the post office for what it is, which is a civic treasure. It is part of our government. It is part of our institution. Um, we need to treasure it. And so we need to fund it and we need to protect it from structural um, harms that, that allow it, that have, that have put it where it is today. So, Many people don't know, the last several years ago, there was a law passed that requires the post office to fully pre-fund its pension, 100% fully pre-fund its pension. That's not something that any business in this country could possibly do. That's not something that we ask any other part of government to do. So we're putting those kind of barriers on the post office and then they say, well, look, you're failing. We're hampering them from modernizing, from offering more services to the community, postal banking, um, being able to sell products that people need. 
Um, and then we're pointing at them and saying, you're failing. So I'm a huge champion for the post office. I think it's an incredibly important institution. I think about all of the seniors right now who are relying on the post office to get medicine um, and other people who are not able to leave their homes to get medicine. I think about the role the post office put, has long played in serving the community of people with disabilities. It is such an important institution. So we have to fund it. We have to fight Trump's attacks on it. Um, the Oversight Committee is gearing up to have a hearing um, looking at what Trump is doing um, and Trump's appointee as Postmaster General is doing to the post office. But to be clear, first and foremost, if you, like me, want to save the post office, get out there and vote for Biden-Harris and make sure everybody you know can and does. We have to try to help the post office hang on for the next 84 days. And when we win the White House and the Senate and the House, then we can begin the structural reform to rebuild the post office and to, and to allow it to recreate itself for the next several generations of Americans. With regard to mail-in balloting, I mean, this whole dynamic over absentee versus mail-in and the, the language confusion, um, one of the things that, that I'm a big fan of is making sure that we're pushing for um, secretaries of state and county registrar of voters to be adapting and using technology to combat some of these risks and perceptions. Um, and so in Orange County, for example, you can track your ballot. You can see that it was mailed to you. You can see that it was received. You can see that it was opened. You can see that it was either counted or not counted. If it was not counted, you can see the reason and you have the opportunity to contact the registrar and try to fix that. That is the kind of transparency that we ought to be bringing to this entire, entire voting process. And so I think the American public, by the way, strongly supports vote by mail. Um, Trump is trying to sow disinformation, um, but I think we just need to keep pushing back at it. Um, and, and I think we also, as progressives, I just want to caution, need to be realistic about what we can accomplish with vote by mail, particularly in this cycle. Vote by mail, every American, especially in this pandemic, but I think in general, every American should have the right to vote by mail, should be able to vote whether they can't get out of work or they can't leave their house, whether they're home with kids, whether something like 30% of polling places today are not handicap accessible, holding back people with disabilities from being able to exercise their right to vote. So I firm believer that everybody should get a mail ballot, but historically in the last couple of years, when you look at who chooses to vote by mail, that coalition is older, whiter, and more conservative. And I can tell you sitting here in Orange County, that's not my winning coalition to keep this seat. So we have to recognize that there's significant proportion of Americans who still want to go in person to vote. They don't, they don't trust a mail-in ballot. They don't believe it will be counted. Um, and giving them electronic verification and a system to track their ballot can help address some of those concerns over time. That's Katie Porter in conversation with Katrina Vandenhoogle for The Nation. You can watch or listen to their full conversation at thenation.com slash events. It's the same old story. 
This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for Ella Taylor's Virus Time Television. That's E-T-V-T. TV, Ella Taylor, Virus Time Television. Ella, of course, a longtime film critic and writer for the LA Weekly, the New York Times, and NPR.org. She's in Santa Monica at home. Ella, welcome back. Hello. How are you, John? Well, you know, I'm a historian of the 60s, and there's a terrific new documentary out now about politics on TV in 1968. It's called The Sit-In Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. It's streaming now on Peacock. That's the new streaming platform from NBC. Uh, what did you think about the sit-in? And, and I wrote a book about television during this period, um, <laughs> but I didn't know about this particular event in 1968, obviously a very resonant uh, year. Harry Belafonte uh, was asked to host a week of the Johnny Carson show. By now, that should seem a lot more normal than it does, because in 2020, there are still very, very few black late-night TV talk show hosts. So there's that. Um, but at that time, it was pretty unusual, and uh, it was a direct response to two connected sets of, of social change. One was in the wider culture. As we know, 1968 <clears throat> was a year of great ferment, um, the campus revolt uh, and its connection to opposition to the Vietnam War, the women's rise of the second wave feminist movement, climate change. Um, and Harry Belafonte, who by that time was a very well-known singer um, who had infused his songs with calypsos from his home country of Jamaica uh, and also did a great deal to revive the black folk music. He was also an activist by that time in the civil rights movement. He had been very much influenced um, by Martin Luther King with whom he had a close connection and also uh, by Rosa Parks. And over the years he was to become a close associate of um, of uh, Bobby Kennedy, whom he pretty much converted to the civil rights movement. Um, Bobby Kennedy had not had really that much contact until then with um, racial justice. The second set of changes was in television itself, which I think partly in response to um, these social change, wider social changes had moved to, from a politics of consensus with shows like Leave it to Beaver and so on, where they were trying to appeal to a, a mass audience, but largely a mass white audience, to programming for social relevance, where they began to pay attention to, uh, to social issues. That was primarily in order to attract um, the kind of audiences who spent a lot of money. Um, so uh, instead of trying to attract a mass audience, they implemented demographics, which was an attempt to appeal to certain audiences who would bring in a lot of advertising revenue for them. 
And late night television became, in its own way, their attempt to to use relevance as part of their programming strategy. And of course, Johnny, the Johnny Carson show was a, a landmark show in that regard. So were the Smothers Brothers, who were big darlings of the left and who were friends of Harry Belafonte. So uh, enter Harry Belafonte agreeing to take over, to sit in, as uh, this movie is called, on the Johnny Carson show for five nights. Alas, only two episodes of that show survive in video. The rest survives as a series of um, audio tapes that were made by a fan uh, and he turned over to the makers of this film. And uh, we also see clips of those two shows in which um, Harry Belafonte had Martin Luther King on the show. Um, he had an all-black lineup on that night. And only one white member of the panel, who was Paul Newman, who was very much a fellow traveler, is delightful to watch. I mean, it's very funny and entertaining. Turns out Martin Luther King was quite the jokester, but it also was very serious. The other one is with Bobby Kennedy, which was a, a more sober episode. The film uses a whole bunch of talking heads, some of whom, uh, many of whom are black. Uh, and uh, it also features an interview with an extremely hale and hearty 90-year-old Harry Belafonte uh, and his daughter. So it was a mixture of uh, politics that week and uh, music. Earlier on, Belafonte had had his own TV show, which was sponsored by Revlon. Revlon got very annoyed with him for having a multiracial cast on that show and asked him to um, take that down, and he walked away from them. He was and is an extraordinary presence. He has this Apollonian beauty that you just can't stop looking at him. A wonderful singing voice and enormous verve and vigor. Um, and uh, at least on television, he projected uh, great joy in life as well uh, and great commitment to the civil rights movement. You know, you mentioned the fact that only two of the shows survive on videotape. NBC, it turns out, destroyed regularly all the Tonight Show tapes. They just taped over it, I guess, to save money or something. Like two-inch tape, I guess it's expensive. I mean, it's, it's appalling. But the filmmakers here kind of made a virtue out of necessity, not having much video from the week. They've expanded the range of what we, what the documentary is about. It's really a kind of a mini history of the first months of 1968 when, as you say, Martin Luther King had not yet been assassinated. Bobby Kennedy had not yet been assassinated. The political season of primaries in the 1968 election is just about to begin. It's sort of like the last hopeful moment in American politics of the 60s. The year would, you know, would go on to assassinations, the disaster of the Democratic National Convention in August, then the election, narrow victory of Nixon. It's a crucial historical moment, and I, I think they do a pretty good job of conveying that in this documentary. So while the TV show is amazing, and the story of Harry Belafonte on TV for a week is amazing, they didn't limit it that way. They made it much, much bigger. And that's what I really appreciate about it. I did, when I heard it was a documentary about a week of TV, I thought, well, 
I, do I want to spend an hour watching, you know, TV from 1968? But they've made it much bigger, much more significant, and I think much more successful. I think so. I mean, one of the things, there are two things. One, one of the things that comes out implicitly from the, the film is that I think it, at that time, the networks, which was really all we had, <laughs> they were just waking up to uh, people's interest in politics and, and in sociology but they didn't quite understand just how powerful popular culture was. And that was really, you know, yours and my generation pretty much discovered that in music, in television, in film, just all over the place. And I think that's why a lot of that stuff was destroyed because people didn't really understand how central pop culture was going to be in defining particular moments. Belafonte himself is, is seen in the film um, saying in 1968, this is the most critical moment in our history. And uh, I do wish that the film had shown more, perhaps it was beyond its scope, of what that looks like seen from today um, with Black Lives Matter and so on, that you could read it both ways. One is that, you know, the power of expression is there, of Black expression is there, it's certainly there in the arts, there's no question, both politically and socially. But there is also the, the, the more the downside of that is that you still have to say it all for people yeah. to get it, you know. Well, I think it's very important that you mentioned the, um, the continuing absence of black hosts on late night TV. In 1968, there was only one late night show. Johnny Carson was the only one CBS and ABC had been unable to successfully challenge him. Now there's, there's many, but you know, who did we get after Johnny Carson? We got Jay Leno. Now we have Jimmy Fallon. Really, there's, there's only one black host late, late night right now, and that's Trevor Noah, but he's on Comedy Central, which is not a network. It is a cable show. Mm -hmm. uh, we had Arsenio Hall for a few years. Oprah had a late night show mm -hmm. at one point. Uh, you know, various other, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, I think, had a late night. They tried her out. If you remember Stephen Colbert, when he was given the CBS late night show, he wasn't very good for the first month, for the second month, but they said... We have confidence that he is going to do it. They gave him the time and the space to develop it. And now he's got a fantastic show. But none of the black people who had shows for a while had that kind of backing or confidence in them from the networks. The other striking thing to me about this documentary is this thing was hiding in plain sight. It wasn't a secret that Harry Bull, you, I'd never heard about it. You're a historian of television of the era. You'd never heard about it. Some black people knew about it, but the, the idea of a documentary actually originated in an article for The Nation by Joan Walsh, but she didn't know how to make a documentary. She only knew how to write an article. So it took a long time for the article to be read by the people who could make it into a movie and get Harry Belafonte to help recruit people for it. But it came out at exactly the right moment, as you say. If this had come out three years ago, I don't think it'd have anything like the significance or the I impact that... Yeah, I don't think it would have been made three years ago. I mean, that's one of the things that I think we can see as a positive is that Black Lives Matter and a, a whole bunch of social issues that are being, uh, certainly the Me Too movement and so on, 
people in the entertainment industry are paying attention. How much is going to be seen and for how long? I think that one of the things we have to be really careful about uh, is to keep pushing because they could say, all right, for a few months, we're going to have, you know, more attention paid to black issues. We'll have black women film directors, which we certainly have certainly increased their visibility here. There's some marvelous stuff coming out, television. And uh, the question is whether it will last. And, you know, basically in the television entertainment industry, they are interested in profits. <laughs> so we yeah. have to, you know, you have to keep up, up the pressure. I think that women are certainly understanding that. The Sitium, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. It's streaming uh, now on Peacock. That's NBC's new streaming platform. What else have you got to recommend to us this week? Well, this is going to be a hard recommend, but it is heartfelt. Um, it's Charlie Kaufman's new film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is a very characteristic title for him. For those who don't know, he, was, he became very well known as a screenwriter on Being John Malkovich, which was a huge indie hit, an adaptation, um, which I always show to my film students because it's about the sort of divide between independent film and, and Hollywood studio films and also features Nicolas Cage in an absolutely bravura performance as twins. <laughs> also Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Human Nature and then he uh, turned his hand to directing with Synecdoche Oh, I'm sure I mispronounced that. New York and uh, an animated film called Anoma Lisa a couple of years ago. And uh, people who have seen those movies will know that um, Kaufman's great subject in art and, and I assume in life is existential anguish. <laughs> um, and another is, is the ambiguity of the reality that, uh, that we perceive. I'm thinking of ending things has m multiple meanings. Um, this is not a film for people who are looking for a cheery Saturday night. <laughs> Thank you for, for warning us. Yes. It is a film for those who are willing to tolerate a great deal of ambiguity and who want to expand their vision of how cinema can illuminate the great questions of life, reality, life and death. I found it enormously nourishing. A whole bunch of critics had not liked it at all and said that Kaufman is always has his head up his rear end and stuff like that. I love it. I've always loved his films. And I loved this one, even though it is probably the most opaque film he's ever made. But it is enormously nourishing if you pay attention. It may be described as Kaufman's first excursion into horror. And there is a very symbolic, largely symbolic basement, dark basement in the movie, but it's very interior horror. There's, no, there's very little actual violence or there's no monsters. It, star, it was originally supposed to star Brie Larson um, as one half of a couple who are driving through a snow blizzard to meet his parents. Uh, I believe she pulled out and she was replaced by Jessie Buckley, who is a wonderful young British actress, although if I didn't know that, I could not have told. She she's, does a wonderful American accent. She was in uh, last year in a lovely, very charming and upbeat 
movie, Wild Rose, about a, a Glasgow singer who wants to make it to Nashville. And Jesse Plemons, who gives an absolutely brilliant performance as the other half of this couple. They have only been going together for six or seven weeks, but she is already thinking about ending things. So that's one meaning. And uh, there's a long sequence of their desultory conversation as they drive through this blizzard with the windshield wipers going monotonously to and fro in front of them. He is conciliatory, he's a bit meek, and she uh, is inclined to pick fights, but mostly what we hear is her interior thoughts about wanting to end things because she's not seeing this as a satisfactory relationship. Some of that is quite funny in a bleak sort of a way. They get to his parents' house on a remote farm. And there she meets, she's introduced to his parents who are played in a key of extremely black comedy by David Thewlis, the, the British actor, and Tony Collette, who is just distinguished in whatever part she plays. And there they are treated to visions of the past, the present, and the future of this parental couple um, with a very, very bleak view um, of the aging process and oncoming dementia. Meanwhile, there are images intercut on a frequent basis of an apparently unrelated high school janitor who is going about his business of washing floors in a conspicuously empty high school. On the way back from the parental house, they actually make a detour. She's very reluctant. He's very insistent to that high school. And that leads to a big reveal, which I will not reveal, <laughs> about who the janitor is. And not only that, but who this couple is and whether they even exist outside the, mount, the mind of a fantasist. There is a musical sequence that uh, derives from Oklahoma right at the end. Okay. In, there. Uh, in many ways, the film echoes some of the concerns of adaptation, which is about um, at least one half of these twins, um, who's a screenwriter, finds it very, very difficult to pursue women. Uh, and that's a theme that is continued uh, in all sorts of ways that it would ruin things if I, if I uh, revealed them. So some of this is, is about one person's life lived in regret or seen in regret, overseen in regret. The film is littered with references to film, literature, uh, music, the feminine part of this couple, the female part of this couple, variously describes herself as a Riley, as a physicist, a poet, a painter, and all kinds of uh, artistic. And it's left up to us, uh, which we believe uh, in any of them. I am going to watch it again. Uh, it's over two hours long. And I just think it is this year's movie, in many ways, the best movie of the year. And I will be very interested to, to hear how our listeners feel about this or whether they want to hurl rotten eggs at me for, for this review. Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Uh, and where can we see this? 
uh, we can see it for free on Netflix right now. One final note, thanks to you. We've started watching A French Village, the drama 72 hours long made in France uh, about the uh, occupation and resistance during World War II. Uh, just want to clarify, starting with season two, we were told by Amazon Prime that we had to pay. You got it through season four for some reason. Maybe it's changed now. It's on MHZ also, which is the American public broadcaster that specializes in international television programming. MHZ costs $7.99 a month. We signed up because we've got to see the next 60 hours of a French village. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. I will say that, that it doesn't fare well in the last two seasons, in my opinion. It becomes extremely soapy. But still, if you've been on board for these characters so far, you really have to watch the end. And I'm told that the after party is a total gas. There is a video of the after party, a total <laughs> gas, with the life of the party, my friend Art Goldheimer told me, uh, being the Nazi, the guy who plays the Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been Ella Taylor's Virus Time Television, ETVT TV. Thank you, Ella. Thank you, and I'm not even going to try to elaborate on those initials. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.